Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating a podcast today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify and when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I love engaging with my audience with the Q&A and the polls. And I also love the fact that I can upload my video podcast on Spotify because I know my audience love watching it sometimes when they're traveling on their commute. I highly recommend you give it a try and you can download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com forward slash podcasters to get started. Being a doctor is up there with one of the most stressful jobs you can have. Every year or actually every few months, I actually even ask myself, is it time I walk away? Is it time I quit? When you make an error in an office job, Okay, not great. Mm-hmm. If you make an error when you're dealing with someone's life, that doesn't just impact the patient, it impacts the individual as well. Because you might have a say on whether they live or die. Well, this happened a lot with COVID, didn't it? In terms of everyone saying it was a scam. When people say COVID is a scam, misinformation is sexy. Having these polarized views is sexy. Saying that, hey, there's some nuance or giving you the real science is not sexy. Leaning one way or the other grabs attention. Outside my on-screen personality, I'm actually a bit of an introvert. Yeah, a lot of doctors don't. They smoke, they drink loads of alcohol. I know many doctors who abuse all sorts of drugs as well. Why? If I haven't told many people this, if, you know, any people actually. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Millennial Mind. If you haven't already, please, 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 can you do me a massive favor and press the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening or watching to this. Only 4% of you that watch and listen to this podcast are actually following it. And the bigger the show gets, the bigger the guests get, and the bigger the experience gets too. Thank you so much for all of your support so far. Let's get into the episode. Karen, or should I say Dr. Karen? No, current day. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on a Millennial Mind. I'm so happy to have you here. No, thank you for having me. The first time I heard about you, I was at the Asian Media Awards. I'm sitting there and then suddenly your face just appears on screen and it's like, Dr. Curran, special award for him. They go through everything you've done. And I was, really? at that moment, I followed you. Wow. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh. And then only very recently, I saw you followed me back. So that's when I had the guts to ask you to come on my podcast. So <laughs> funny story. But no, I'm, I'm really happy to have you here because... I think you're doing so many different things and you've inspired so many people um, through different avenues you're going through. So I kind of want to start because generally when you speak to people who are doctors, dentists in the medical field, uh, they always tell me, well, I've always known I've wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. But you're Indian. So I have to ask the question, have you always known or was it your parents? <laughs> so the answer I gave in my medical school interview mm-hmm. was a complete lie. <laughs> I gave a standard textbook answer, you know, I want to be a doctor forever, this, this and this, yeah. and this is all my experience and taste of weeks I've done or whatever. But the truth is, I didn't really enjoy the thought of medicine, even though my mum was a doctor, I didn't enjoy all of that, the thought of all of that when I was uh, growing up. But interestingly enough, I haven't told many people this, if, you know, any people actually, uh, I was in Mumbai, I grew up, I was born in Mumbai. Okay. I came to the UK when I was five via Nairobi and Hong Kong. I used to go back to Mumbai every summer as, you know, most of my family were there. Uh, and just outside my apartment, I was playing, you know, street cricket with my cousins. It was a really hot kind of summer day. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I was bowling to my cousin and he just fell to the ground, like crumpled, like an invisible sniper had shot him down. And I ran over to him and he was just in so much pain. And then we took him to the hospital. Well, my kind of uncle and aunt took him to the hospital. I went as well. It turned out he had a ruptured appendix. And he almost died from that as well. And at that point, I was like, oh, my God. So you could say the, you know, next decade or, you know, decade and a half mm-hmm. was me attempting to get revenge on the appendix. In, in a way, that was one of the triggering points. 
And then as I grew older, my mom kind of told me stories about her time as a doctor and this and that. And I enjoyed the thought of that. And I thought, wow, okay. So as all of these things culminated in me, you know, having that affinity for thinking about medicine. So your, your mom's a doctor? Mom's a doctor, yeah. Oh, wow. She must be very proud. Yeah. Well, you know what? She was, <laughs> out of both my parents, my dad really wanted me to be to wanted me to be a doctor yeah my mom despite being a doctor uh she kind of pushed me against the idea she was like it is tough Mm -hmm. it's hard work you have to do these night shifts on calls it's a lot of exams for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. so she made the point against being a doctor but my dad was like no you have to be a doctor (laughs) you know he's classic indian dad this is what i'm gonna be like as a parent because I, i i do think when i see a doctor and my dad always says this like whenever i see a doctor and they're a surgeon or recently when someone a loved one has been in hospital and they come in and they just tell you tell you what to do I'm always like in awe of them I'm like wow you're like superman and one time when um a loved one was in in quite a a bad situation my dad was like you obviously fancy the doctor I was like I don't fancy the doctor (laughs) I just like I'm in awe of them and I and I am because I think that you know when this doctor came in he was like I haven't slept for three days but let me take my time and he went through everything and I remember thinking in that moment gosh if I haven't slept for one day I'm like a complete animal I'm so moody so I think that it's not only admirable in terms of how much you have to study but it's like you said continuously studying continuously pushing and always having to be there for other people because your life is dependent on other people in that sense like you have to be totally selfless you cannot leave i presume right if a patient needs you yeah i mean a classic example would be you know our hours are relatively fixed in terms of you know you start at 8 8 and you're on till 5 36 but if you finish at 6 p.m and there is someone dying or struggling to breathe, you can't be like, see you later. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, um, you need to, you know, stay on, make sure they're mm-hmm. safe, stabilize them, um, you know, do whatever you need to do. And then once they're stable, it could be seven, eight o'clock, and then you hand over to the night person to continue the management. And, that, and that's part of the responsibility you take on being a doctor. Mm-hmm. There aren't fixed times Unless you're doing like a clinic, for example, yeah. and you see patients in a clinic, that ends at a roughly a, a specific time. But even then, yeah. you know, medicine isn't a specialty where you're just making, you know, a dish there, you know, put it in the oven for an hour, it's done. It's mm-hmm. You're dealing with people, you're dealing with multiple variables, so you don't know when something will finish or what unpredictable event might happen. So taking into account those unpredictabilities in life mm-hmm. you have to be open to you know missing dinners with your friends or meeting your family or your you know family's birthdays and weddings and all sorts of things that's part and parcel of being a doctor unfortunately you know it's not just around missing your friends parties or just missing out on a social plan there's actually something a lot deeper than that which is actually there's a detriment to your own health as well as a doctor and we've talked about that and, and we will touch on that in a minute i want to kind of go through you know you obviously studied during that time for how many years? Is it six years? Yeah, six years of medical school. And then tell me the process of what happens. Uh, so six years of medical school, sometimes five, depending on the university you're in. This is in the UK. Mm-hmm. Then you're an FY1 doctor, a foundation year one doctor. Mm-hmm. And then you're a foundation year two doctor. And mm-hmm. that's when you get your uh, full GMC registration, uh, the General Medical Council. So you're fully you know, licensed to be a doctor. And then at the FY2 or that foundation year two stage, you can then decide which subspecialty you want to branch off into. Okay. Whether you want to do medicine, surgery, which specific type of surgery, uh, you know, GP, you want to be a family doctor, psychiatrist, all these things, they Mm -hmm. kind of uh, branch off from there. If you want to be a surgeon, for example, you have to go into core surgical training. Now, for most surgical specialties, it's usually a generic surgical thing because for all surgical specialties in the very early stage, first two years, core training one and core training two, the skills are broad. You know, you need to pick up those tissue handling skills, how to dissect all these things, anatomy. So it's general. You're not in ENT surgery or neurosurgery. It's just general. You could be in anything. So in my early years, I did urology, uh, you know, dealing with kidneys and bladders. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did plastic surgery. I did general surgery. I did all sorts of different surgeries, Mm -hmm. even though I didn't want to do most of those things. And then after those two years, you go into higher specialty training. Now that goes from ST3, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, six years of higher specialty training until you become a fully fledged surgeon uh, or like a consultant in the UK and every year is more responsibility you operate more on your own and you know it's a uh, 
progressive thing. So right now, um, you know, I'm significantly more independent than I was several years ago. I can, mm-hmm. you know, cut bowel cancers out of people, remove mm-hmm. people's appendixes, gallbladders, fix hernias, um, you know, all, all sorts of things. Um, I'm confused just you telling me about that. When you were telling me all those things, I was like, oh I was my God. <laughs> well, when I was a junior doctor applying um, for surgical training pathways, I was like, what, what does all these numbers mean? <laughs> CT1, FY? I didn't actually understand it. It's a very convoluted process. Mm-hmm. There's so many exams and interviews you need to sit. I thought when I finished medical school, that's it. I've got into medical school. I'm going to be a doctor. And it's all easy. Yeah. It's not. Medical school is the easiest time of your life. It's my the funnest time gosh. of your life. The real work, you know, starts when you become a doctor and then you start at the bottom of another ladder. And it's a ladder that never ends. And that's saying something because you went to Imperial, right? Yeah. So it can't have been the most fun university experiences. I'm yeah, joking. well, yeah. <laughs> So one of the things we've spoken about off camera and I think is very relevant in terms of what people are going through today is the cost of living crisis. Yeah. yeah? So as you said, you've, you've gone through medical school for five or six years, however long it is. Mm. What was your starting salary? So as a first year doctor in the UK, depending on the location, if you're in London or somewhere else, you're on somewhere around 25,000, maybe a little bit more than that. 25,000, 27,000 pounds a year. And that is... Um, before tax. Compare so, that to like a banker salary of like forty five fifty. Yeah, I've often compared myself to friends who work at JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, or, you know, are financiers in the city and all these things. And, you know, their bonuses are more than my yearly salary when I was, well, even now, <laughs> they're mm-hmm. more. And I don't think it's fair to completely compare because I knew what I was getting myself into. I never expected I'm going to get a banker's salary as a first year doctor or as a doctor will stop. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, though, as you progress uh, in life as a doctor, uh, the gradations go up. You earn a little bit more. And then when you're a specialty doctor like I am now in the kind of higher surgical uh, pathway, you earn around £60,000 uh, or mm-hmm. a little bit uh, around that uh, before tax. Okay. Again, in the grand scheme of things, for the amount of stress you undertake, the night shifts you do, the sacrifices you make, it's arguable. I would say it's probably not you know, worthy of that person. They probably should earn a bit more. Um, Same with all healthcare professionals. And that's why, you know, nurses, physios, ambulance uh, workers, doctors are all striking because they want pay restoration or pay rises to, you know, be in keeping with what they feel they're worth. Definitely. I I think that they're definitely underpaid. And I think everybody knows that. But why are doctors still underpaid is is something that's a deeper question. And you're not a politician and neither am I for us to go through in another way. But, you know, I was watching this movie. I've forgotten the name of it now. What was it called? I've told you before. The Good Nurse. This is why he went to Imperial (laughs) and he's a doctor. Before the before we spoke, I told you about The Good Nurse. And, And for anyone who's seen it, you'll see... In this movie, a nurse who's struggling, going to work every single day, suffering from health problems herself, but she doesn't have that insurance because she hasn't worked at the hospital long enough. And then she goes home and she's a single mother. And then she's going through all this stuff at work. And it really made me step back and think, we really don't know enough around the people who are working to save our lives. And, you know, when you compare our health system to America and things like that, we are so lucky. You know, we don't have to think about calling an ambulance if we have to pay like a 2,000, 5,000 pound bill. But, you know, mental health is something that I speak a lot about on this podcast. And it's something that I know people are struggling with in the NHS. So talk to me a little bit about that. I think the struggles in the NHS on a macro level, the whole cohort of healthcare workers is shared on a micro level by every single person working there at different points. Uh, From the first year doctor, overwhelmed by Mm -hmm. the task he has to do or she has to do and just dealing with life in the hospital to the most senior doctors dealing with admin responsibility and all the weight of the years working in NHS and seeing uh, the floors and the system crumble. There's so many stressors that impact. And for me specifically, and I'm sure this is echoed by a lot of my colleagues, it's not just the pay, it's the stresses of parking, uh, the lack of rest facilities in the hospital, uh, the sleeping conditions, the amount of work, the lack of staff, which then burdens the individual with even more responsibility and work. And the more responsibility you give a person, if you know, and you're on a skeleton team where the team is stretched, you've got more work, it's only natural that that will increase the rates of mistakes and errors. When you make an error in an office job, okay, not great. Mm-hmm. You make an error when you're dealing with someone's life, 
that doesn't just impact the patient impacts the individual as well because you might have a say on whether they live or die mm-hmm. or in the best case scenario whether they have a wound infection or they have a longer stay in hospital because you made an error which is still such a huge mm. weight to carry and such a burden to carry but even aside from that just doing shift work not sleeping well stress contributes so much to mental health worries and i've said this before and i'll say it again you know when someone is working in a healthcare setting you are sacrificing your life years to save other people's lives to extend their life you're shortening your own life mm-hmm. being a doctor is up there with one of the most stressful jobs you can have you know whether it's a pilot or being in the army mm-hmm. fire uh, you know being in the uh, fire de- fire what are they you know um so i think all of these uh, factors contribute to making it a ridiculously difficult job to deal with and every year or actually every few months i actually even ask myself is it time i walk away is it time i quit wow um you know and i've constantly said that to myself and during the pandemic those kind of 2 3 years i said that to myself more times than ever like do i need to hang up my boots here am i done like it's really getting to me now i'm close to burnout what's getting to you I think it's everything it's uh the stress of the job not being able to have a work life balance not seeing my family enough and uh, during the pandemic I think it accentuated my fears and uh, the worries I had about the job and how it impacted my life I didn't want to go into work and then come home to my parents and potentially myself have covid and then go to my parents house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't want to, you know, be at home a lot of the time and then not seeing my parents. I'm a, I'm a lonely child. So, yeah. not seeing my parents was something I wasn't comfortable with. Mm. Um so it was that just the sleeplessness, the stress of the job but also career progression. You need to progress in your career. So that involves mm-hmm. doing exams, um, you know, doing interviews. constantly uh, appraising yourself revalidating yourself that means uh, publishing papers going to conferences going to courses so this is all called cpd continuous mm-hmm. professional development so you know aside from your job you know dealing with people's lives and disease and sickness and health you need to improve yourself and going on conferences and courses are bloody expensive you know um few years back one of the exams i had to sit for my surgical exams they cost me a couple of grand just to sit the exams oh my um, gosh i'm going to a conference in uh, a couple of months time uh, to you know go to the conference and publish um my uh, research that i'm presenting all of that is around a grand um and sometimes when you're publishing a piece of research into a journal some of the papers require you to pay a fee um so there's constant you know and on top of that the GMC license to maintain my license a few hundred quid um the British Medical Association the kind of uh, to pay for that it's also a few hundred pounds to maintain my post nominals MRCS you know member of the Royal College of Surgeons i need to pay a few hundred pounds to the Royal College of Surgeons to maintain that so i am leaking money out of every orifice um you know just to maintain my profession and on top of that you need to progress so One thing is dealing with patients and the other thing is career progression it's a money game. My gosh. I mean you have 5 million followers on TikTok. Yeah. And around half a million on Instagram. Why haven't you quit? You have another avenue. I'm not encouraging him by the way. Yeah. I'm just I'm just asking the question because a lot of people in your position don't necessarily have another avenue. Where do they go? Where do they start? But social media is I guess a little bit of a phenomenon in the last few years where you can make probably you know thousands and thousands of pounds yeah. without having the so-called stress because every job is stressful which is why I did the inverted brackets yeah yeah i mean you know the thing is there is a lot of money to be made in social media mm-hmm. and i've been offered multiple opportunities by various brands from you know vitamin gummy companies to <laughs> supplement companies to probiotic companies to um massage guns all sorts of different companies on a daily basis reach out to me saying can you promote this product for you know x amounts of money and if i said yes to all of that i would happily you know 10x my nhs salary on a monthly basis and mm-hmm. i could live a great lifestyle but realistically 
all of these things don't align with my principles. And I'm not sitting on my high horse saying that, you know, I'm this, I'm too good for, you know, all of these things. It's just a conflict of interest because if I say one thing, because my account serves to educate and entertain as a bonus. Mm -hmm. So if I'm saying that this supplement is bullshit or, you know, this doesn't work or I debunk something and then promote the same thing I debunk, where's my credibility? It's in the wind. So I say no to, you know, essentially all of those things. But, you know, do I want to make some money on social media? Of course. Uh, but I think there's other means for me to do that. You know, I can grow a YouTube following and make, um, you know, ad revenue, you know, mm-hmm. with the YouTube views. Or I can maybe launch a podcast one day and get money from the streams. Maybe mm-hmm. I can write a book and get money from the book sales. So I think these are all ways that I would like to do things. And yeah. this is not, you know, sh- no shade on any influencer doing all these things unless those products are harmful in some way to uh, the consumer. Otherwise, you know, do what you want, but it's just not what I want to do. 100%. So let, let's talk around your how you grew, because this is the forefront of everyone's mind for this year. How do I grow? How do I grow? How do I grow? And, you know, you started by just making YouTube videos, right? Yeah, so a lot of people see my success and the overnight success. You know, this guy just blew up on TikTok. But, mm-hmm. you know, actually, it's a 10-year overnight success, if yes. you will. 2012, I started a YouTube channel focusing on very um, medical-centric videos, teaching um, medical students and physios, nurses and junior doctors how to do certain medical examinations, how to listen to someone's heart, how to do an abdominal examination, how to take someone's blood pressure. Very healthcare-focused for a healthcare professional or a medical student. And, uh, you know, that got some vi- degree of virality and kind of a cult following, 35,000-ish. And On YouTube? Enjoy that. Yeah, this is back in 2012. Oh my God, that's not some following. I, I think I've just reached 5,000 5, on YouTube and I've been doing this for a year. <laughs> it, it was a good time. And, you know, there's early stages of YouTube mm. where 2012 was relatively early stage of YouTube where it wasn't as big as the mammoth it is now. Yeah. And But the thing is, I stopped. You know, I was so busy, caught up in my medical school exams and everything. I just kind of stopped there. Mm. And I didn't start reposting or making stuff on YouTube again till about 2018, 2019. It was almost like wow. a six year voluntary hiatus I took. And I really regret that. It's one of, you know, um, a big regret of mine. I wish I'd continued uh, posting on YouTube then because who knows what would happened. Uh, but anyway, you know, I'm here now. It's um, hindsight's a great thing. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm here now. I'm making content. I'm enjoying myself. So, you know, happy days. And how did you suddenly grow? Because I know, like we've said, nothing is an overnight success and those small moments really do add up. So when did you kind of get into the swing of it? And also, more importantly, how did you have the time? So I saw I was just a consumer on TikTok initially and I I thought, okay, there's maybe another nice way I can educate the stuff I was doing on YouTube then. Mm. Shorter, easier way, doesn't involve any editing. I can edit all everything in the app. Great, because I'm not an editor. Mm -hmm. I don't have those skills. So I thought, great, let me do this. And I started making videos and actually one of my juniors suggested me uh, to make some videos about some weird medical facts. <laughs> and I made a series of weird medical facts. Like every day I'd post one or two videos, weird medical facts. Like, you know, did you know that the human body has more microbial cells than human cells? And, you know, just interesting okay. facts like that. And I posted that and people just really enjoyed it. And this also coincided with a time where, you know, the pandemic and COVID and Mm -hmm. people taking a greater ownership and interest in their own health and science. Science suddenly in 2020 became sexy. Um, So it coincided with my kind of rise on TikTok. And then obviously the COVID COVID vaccines and misinformation and the pandemic. And I made content around that. And that also, um, you know, highlighted some degree of authority and expertise where Mm -hmm. I was able to debunk certain things. Um, So all all of these things, it was just, you know, synchronicity. Just it was all the stars aligned for those things to happen based on also my experience of doing videos 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. That helped as well in terms of how to say, how to distill information to make sense. Well, you know, despite the COVID and, you know, all of these things, it is phenomenal to have grown that that quickly and you know in 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 a few years it's crazy five million followers on tiktok half a million on instagram and you have loads on on youtube as well when i was looking at you i remember thinking my god i can't i actually the first one of the questions i asked you today was have i seen it wrong or do not really post that many youtube videos because you've got so many youtube followers but you know it really is incredible and i know you know from what you're saying in terms of working those long shifts working those long hours 
to upload a video, because now you do obviously have edit your videos, yeah. you know, to do that is hard. I find it really difficult and I do this full time now. So I know that it's really tough. So talk me through one of those days where you really felt it was really overbearing during work and also trying to manage this at the same time, because you're al almost man managing two jobs. Yeah, it's definitely two jobs. And when I wasn't really doing social media, I always had this attitude that oh, social media would be it would be such an easy job and I'd love to be a content creator yeah. and just make stuff. And I had this dismissive attitude that it's an easy thing. Mm -hmm. But then now I don't like to call myself a content creator. I mean, I'm an educator and I make videos and actually I realize how difficult it is mm -hmm. being a full-time content creator or anything yeah. like that because... You know, there's so many variables that go into it. Coming up with content, recording, mm -hmm. you're your own producer, videographer, mm -hmm. sound person, editor, mm -hmm. everything. And your own marketing person. You're doing multiple roles in one. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and a whole team could do that. And that is several hours a day. Yeah. Uh, and then to make it good, that's even more. And when you grow a following, whether it's 10,000, 100,000 or a million, the demands are even greater because you 100%. feel a responsibility that you need to keep doing content. And so, it needs to get better and better and oh, better. Yeah, you yeah. need to keep upping your uh, quality and quantity sometimes. So, you know, I'd finish a shift, I'd come home 6, 7 p.m. And I'd feel this urge like, oh my God, I haven't posted for two days. I need to post something to yeah. keep up the momentum, right? And um, that is quite stressful. Mm. Okay, how do I balance going to the gym, seeing my family, looking after my dog, and also sleeping and eating, washing the dishes, and also relaxing yeah. and making content? It's a tough ask. And I think TikTok, in a way, it's been easy just to make quick 30-second content. And luckily, you know... A lot of my content is science medical based. Mm -hmm. So I can see something and I can immediately think, okay, that's not right. And I can just make a quick 30 second duet where I, you know, um, just basically comment on the video, narrate on the video and give my medical opinion on that. Mm -hmm. So that's an easy, low hanging fruit for me just to do boom, that's done. On days when I'm off, I've got more time. I yeah. can structure some nicer content where I, you know, record it on a camera and edit it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that will take longer, half an hour, an hour maybe. And, you know, when I, on my off days, I can do that. And I can meal prep content. You know, I can yeah. do four videos in one day and I can use that for the following few days. Um, so that's the kind of style I go by. I think a lot of people, though, initially think oh, I have to have a fancy camera or I need to have everything lined up or, you know, I need to have everything in order before I just start. And mm. my biggest piece of advice to everyone is just start. You never yeah. know where it's going to get you. Everyone has an iPhone now. An iPhone has a great camera. Just yeah. record on TikTok. And I think the thing I love most about TikTok is you can literally have no makeup on. Well, not, not, for, not for you, but for me. <laughs> yeah. You can literally have no makeup on, have your hair in a bun, be sitting in a gown and say something and it could go viral. You oh, know, yes. whilst on Instagram, it is a little bit more aesthetic. You have to think about everything a little bit more. But TikTok is so raw like that, that you can just say something. Someone can really resonate with it and it can just blow up, which is really powerful. So, you know, obviously trying to manage all of this stuff at the moment. My initial question to you is why haven't you quit? Mm. You have an avenue. You have another income stream. Why haven't you moved? So, you know, I really love surgery. Mm -hmm. I love medicine. I love looking after people. I love dealing with other doctors, nurses, and the healthcare staff, the community, and that kind of interaction. It's, it's quite strange because I would say, outside my on-screen personality, I'm actually a bit of an introvert. Mm -hmm. I like just being at home with my dog. Mm -hmm. But the exception to that rule is when I'm in the hospital, I'm surrounded by people. I like that atmosphere and community and that's, you know, one of the things which I loved when I was shadowing people when I was a medical student, when I was mm -hmm. even before medical school, shadowing at my local hospital and GP surgery. I love that buzz and that environment mm -hmm. and TV shows like, you know, Scrubs. <laughs> I really loved that. And I was like, I want to be in that environment and all mm -hmm. these in jokes and dark mm -hmm. jokes that doctors have with each other. I just loved all of that. And even just from a technical skills point of view, I love seeing the anatomy and operating and improving myself. So a year ago, I couldn't do that. Now I can do that operation. I, a year ago, I was, um, you know, or two years ago, I was assisting someone doing that bowel cancer operation. Now I'm doing the bowel cancer operation. Mm. Seeing that progression in yourself, all of these things, I just love it. And I don't think I could leave that behind totally. Mm -hmm. I, you know, so the impact that medicine has on my physical and mental health is something I need to, you know, take into consideration. And that would be the reason in maybe a decade or yeah. whenever I hang up my boots, 
because then I would have felt I would have had my fill of doing good, improving myself, and then maybe calling it a day in however many years time. But for now, I want to, you know, try and juggle both. And I think juggling both comes with its own challenges, right? Because I know, like you said, you're kind of going through that, you're managing this. At some point, I must feel that one outweighs the other a little bit. So, you know, one of the things that I really love about you is you really stick to your values. And I speak a lot on this podcast about how we should post for value instead of posting for virality. Now, recently you uploaded a video saying how you got, you turned down a paid partnership mm-hmm. around a particular product yeah, because you believed it was bullshit. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so I get a lot of cold emails and emails from brands and influencer marketing companies mm-hmm. or whatever trying to you know pitch me for various brands or products. And I say no to essentially every single one of them because they don't align with my principles, my values. You know, I can't say one thing. So the example is uh, a couple of probiotic companies in the same week approached me and asking if I could promote their probiotics. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they got in touch with me because I'd actually made a YouTube video (laughs) completely ripping into probiotics and maybe they you know, search by hashtags and saw Dr. Probiotic hashtag, (laughs) let's approach this guy without actually viewing the content and saying, no, this guy's bashing probiotics, not, you know, glorifying and supporting them. So, you know, I just completely ignored the emails. And the thing is, I would feel guilty and I wouldn't feel it sat right with me if I Mm -hmm. took money from companies to promote products I don't believe in. And in fact, products I've you know, admonished and said, no, you don't need them. Because at the end of the day, you know, one of the most highly unregulated industries is the health, wellness and fitness industries. It's so unscrupulous. There's so much pseudoscience and so much bullshit there from vitamins to supplements to probiotics. Um, There is so much wrong there to, you know, UV face, uh, you know, infrared (laughs) face masks and all this kind of stuff. And don't even get me started on the skincare industry, which is a whole can of worms. You know, there's so much wrong there. Mm-hmm. And it's all great marketing. And they get influencers. You are going to trust your favorite influencer. Of course. You know, because they're part of your extended family. It's this parabolic relationship you have with them. You feel that it's your friend. Mm. Your friend is not going to lie to you. Well, let me tell you, your best friend will lie to you if it means their pockets are lined with 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. Yeah. It's money for them. Let's break down some of these things because, look, I, I'm, I'm a bit naive to some of these things. Vitamins. Yeah. Tell me about them. So, okay, I think there's a lot of, you know, nothing is black and white, okay. in, in, neither in medicine or in life. You know, I don't like to make uh, completely sweeping statements on everything, even though I just said. Well, <laughs> everything is rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> so the, there's, the nuance there is that, you know, for most people, you don't really need these multivitamins. The vitamins I take, I sometimes take magnesium because I've done some research on it and I thought it maybe it can it can be a low-hanging fruit to just optimize my sleep hygiene. And N equals one trial of myself, I took magnesium for a couple of weeks and my sleep is already pretty good, mm-hmm. but it just made my sleep even better. So I've continued to take it. Okay. okay. I'm not I'm not saying that someone should take it, but I've just done that own research on my own and it works. The other thing I take is vitamin D. So if you've got darker skin, and especially if you combine that with living in a northern hemispheric country, Scandinavian countries, the UK, where, you know, you have a generally low solar angle and, you know, you get less sunlight, Mm -hmm. less exposure to those UV rays, it's worth taking uh, some vitamin D. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, I don't really take anything at all. Sometimes some protein supplements, protein shakes or whatever. Yeah. for the average person, doesn't really do anything. If you exercise, sleep well, have a varied diet, plenty of fiber, it's fine. We need to also take into account social and health inequalities. Not everyone can afford a varied nutritious diet. They might mm-hmm. be eating processed uh, foods every night of the week, getting takeaway foods that might not provide them with all the micronutrients that they require for a optimized diet, optimized body functioning. So in those cases, they may benefit from the odd supplement just to boost those levels. Yeah. But also, you know, in very simple things, you can gain most of the vitamins you need. You have like some strawberries or an orange. You get all the vitamin C you need for that day pretty much from, you know, eating a few pieces of fruit a day or whatever. Mm. You get all of those nutrients. 
On top of that, if you're also taking supplements every day, if you look at the back of those supplement, um, the ingredients list, it will say all sorts of things like, you know, it will have over 100% of zinc, over 100% of vitamin C. It does say that. You don't need that because actually if you have, for example, in one day, if you accumulate 300% of vitamin C, and if you're basically overdosing on vitamin C, that can cause stomach irritation, nausea. It can actually have, you know, negative impacts if you overdose on vitamins. That's the worst case scenario. You overdose on vitamins and it you know, gives you stomach pains or various other things. The best case scenario is that it's just expensive urine or expensive poo. You don't need it for the vast majority of people. There's a small subset of people for which it will be helpful maybe to supplement themselves until they can change their diet as a transient thing. Do you need to be on vitamins lifelong? No. Wow. Don't. Even for those people who it would benefit, lifelong vitamins doesn't make sense, except a couple, like I mentioned, maybe magnesium, vitamin D, maybe some cod liver oil, maybe, but it's a bit of a gray area that as well. So, you know, it's highly unregulated as well because it's a dietary supplement. It's not a medical product. So again, you know, you can say whatever and do whatever, you know, these all these kind of supermarkets and shops which have that vitamin section, who knows actually what's inside it. And that comes to my point about probiotic supplements that you can get over the counter. You know, I've constantly said your body is like a swimming pool or an mm -hmm. ocean. It's teeming with life. You've got trillions of microscopic bacteria and all sorts in there. You taking an over-the-counter probiotic drink or pill or whatever is the equivalent of you taking a teaspoon of sugar, putting it into the ocean, and then expecting the ocean to taste sweet. Your microbiome is more unique than anyone else's. It's specific for you. It's like a second set of DNA. DNA is unique. The microbiome, your gut bacteria, is unique for you. So how can you expect... Um, a one-size-fits-all probiotic to work for you and everyone else? Would you go into a shop and expect the shop to have uh, a one-size-suit or dress for everyone? Mm. No. So how can you... We need tailored probiotics, which is the future of medicine. Okay. Where we can tailor probiotics based on your um, genetic profile. What are the different strains of bacteria inside you? Maybe we can give you some more of the good stuff for you. Um, so it's highly unregulated. Some of these products, they claim to have, you know, this strain or that strain. We don't even know. There have been studies done showing that actually it's not, those strains don't exist on those probiotics. It's just, it can be anything. And yeah. I've heard a lot of people talking around debunking fat loss pills and, you know, these gummies that will make you lose weight and all of things like that, but never really much around vitamins because I guess we've just believed it. I mean, I've been taking vitamins for so long. And I think when, but for me, I would say, I know that I lived a very rushed lifestyle. And so I grab things on the go. I'm very quick. As you saw today, I had a Coke before you even got here. So for me to take a supplement or to take a vitamin is easy and, and it helps me. But for the average person who's listening and watching this, what's your recommendation? Because aren't vitamins a good way for people who can't afford, you know, a healthy, nutritious meal or people who are running around all the time or, you know, for some people who are just struggling to learn how to cook because that's another chore in itself. <laughs> Again, yes and no. I don't think it's a sustainable long-term option just to keep pouring money into buying vitamins and supplements. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, it's highly unregulated and there are different variations. You know, again, there's like the luxury end of supplements yeah. that offer a monthly subscription to mm. your supplement service versus the cheap generic ones. They're probably realistically equivalent in terms of value. It may help just to top up a few things. You know, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, you're not getting whatever your B12 or iron because you're not, you know, eating meats or whatever. Something might help in certain ways. But again, the kind of tagline, the overall, uh, you know, TLDR is if you're not deficient in a certain vitamin, you don't need vitamin replacements or supplements really. Mm -hmm. um, because when are you going to make the change in your own life? to not rely on vitamins. When are you gonna say, okay, I'm gonna now have a normal diet. You don't need mm. to cook fantastic meals. You know, you just need to have a more of a basic understanding of what foods contain what and just, yeah. you know, make sure you get it in. And the foods themselves, they'll contain the appropriate mix of vitamins, uh, which will be beneficial. So there's a lot of people online who claim to be nutritionists, doctors, 
I don't know, in the healthcare sector. Yeah, yeah. We see a lot of them on TikTok. I'm a registered this and I'm going to help you how to lose 10 pounds in one minute. So there are a lot of people like this who are also unregulated on TikTok and, and things like that. So tell me some of the craziest things you've seen. <laughs> well, just this uh, morning, one of my followers messaged me a video about some guy mm -hmm. uh, who's a chiropractor in America. And he said, um, you know, someone asked him a question off air like, Hey, Doc, what's the best way to boost your testosterone and uh, low sperm count? And he's like, you know, got this smirk on his face. He's like, well, you need to ice your balls. <laughs> like, well, that's a video I'm going to make now. I'm going to make a video about that. And, you know, from that to eating raw testicles, yeah. period face masks, um, you know, perineal sunning, um what else is there vaginal steaming oh yeah i heard about chlorophyll that. uh drinks all of these aloe vera things. drinks oh, what are, what are all those things yeah you know like i said all of these health and wellness fads it's either someone trying to sell you something either their product their course their consultation with them someone's trying to sell you something anyone uses buzzwords like hormones optimized balanced <laughs> talking about hormones in a weird way looking at trying to sell you some weird fad talking about uh, gut imbalances uh, mentioning things like leaky guts mm. or uh, you know talking about parasite cleanses realistically or the my favorite one is like you know doctors are not telling you the truth about this that is a sentence that you'll find in someone who is bullshitting you. You know, doctors are lying to you about this. Are doctors trying to make you sick? You know, that's a classic way to be like, oh, yeah, doctors are all liars. And they're, yeah. they're just drug dealers and they're trying to sell you drugs all the time. No, you need to buy my crazy fungal remedy or whatever. It's like, come on, well, this happened a lot with COVID, didn't it? In terms of everyone saying it was a scam. Yeah. And now there's this new disease. Have you heard of it? Well, obviously you've heard of it. You're a doctor. Obviously I've forgotten the name because I forget everything. But have so, you heard of it? Oh, you haven't heard of it. Okay. Well, there's this new disease in China, apparently, that it's like remember. COVID round two. And in China at the moment, they're on lockdown. Oh, yeah. I think I, yeah. I mean, um, I think China's just actually relaxed their, some of their harsher, yes. you know, lockdown policies. And they've seen a huge spike, um, mm -hmm. in, you know, in their COVID numbers and things like that. And, you know, I think you could argue for and against lockdowns for example in the uk we relaxed the lockdowns and obviously more people got natural covid infections uh this is after a huge percentage of the population's mm. already been vaccinated and are you know safe quote unquote uh but you know china had a zero covid policy where they went ultra lockdown which mm -hmm. you know you can make cases to argue against that and the, the rebound effect is that you know maybe um that wasn't the right idea but I don't know, when people say COVID is a scam, you know, it's it's laughable because you're saying that millions and millions of healthcare workers all over the world were in on some huge uh, scheme. Joke. Yeah. You know, in that case, if it were true, you know, COVID would have been the biggest scam of all time. Yeah. And I always, when people say that to me, I'm like, what was the objective? Why? And people are like, well, all these, vaccine, all these vaccines are really expensive and all these vaccine workers got paid something. I was like... But what about the people who died? Like, or like, was that a scam? And I, and I really find it confusing when people say that. But there's a lot of new vaccines that are coming out now. There's a fourth mm. jab to have. And I guess a lot of people are unclear and a little bit scared to take it. So, I mean, you know, immunity wanes over time. It attenuates because more infections means mm -hmm. more vital replication, means more mutations, means newer strains. And newer strains are more effective at, you know, making the vaccines less effective or mm -hmm. evading, uh, you know, immunity in certain ways. Not to say that, you know, your existing two or three previous vaccines aren't effective. It will just be less effective now, you're all, you know, because of the new strains, um, because it will find different ways to bypass your immune system. So that's why you need sort of vaccine boosters. And we've had that for various diseases in the past. And you know, the thing I find strange about all this comments I used to get when I was talking about the COVID and the vaccine is, oh, you've been paid by Big Pharma. I've not, but I would love to. <laughs> what, to promote something that I actually believe in? Yeah, hell yeah. Why don't you give me some money and I will promote something I already believe in. Uh, and that's the same uh, mentality lots of my co-workers felt like, yeah, I wish they paid us so we could promote something that actually works. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, right, the technology, the mRNA technology 
from the you know the COVID vaccines that's been kind of you know worked on over the last couple of years, that's now had implications in helping us now make vaccines against cancer, HIV. So you know the vaccines weren't just for COVID. Mm-hmm. The technology and the understanding and the science for that has been repurposed for various other things. I guess people's hesitation though is specifically around one day we're saying it's safe for pregnant women, the next day we're saying it's not. One time it's okay, we need three boosters, now it's we need five. So there is a lot of miscommunication, people would say. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that the communication from the top-down level from authorities, institutes and governments were always spot on. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact in many cases it wasn't. And yeah. we even saw examples of our politicians who supposedly we're meant to be able to trust mm-hmm. breaking their own rules. Matt Hancock in the UK breaking lockdown rules, yeah. uh, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. People are dying. Uh, and then now he's in I'm a celebrity, uh, you know, trying to, you know, get forgiveness. So I think, you know, that's uh, hypocritical for us to uh, sit there and say, you know, do this. But then, you know, the people in charge are breaking their own rules. Having said that, science is not a black and white um, thing. It constantly changes as our understanding changes. And COVID was new. It was a novel coronavirus. People didn't right. understand it's for etiology and pathology and how it can progress. You know, we're still getting to grips with things like long COVID. How can mm. COVID still have long-term effects on the brain and various body systems? So it's an evolving science. And that's the beauty of science, that something that you say today can be wrong next week. You know, medical textbooks are constantly out of date as soon as they're published because we're yeah. always evolving. For example, you know, just, just recently, we uncovered a new structure in the brain that we didn't know, a new uh, membrane uh, in the meninges, okay. um, which is fantastic. You know, we thought we know everything about the body. You think we know everything top to toe inside us. Last year or a couple of years ago, we found a new organ in the head. Uh, you know, around wow. the um, nose area. So there's constantly new things being developed that we didn't, you know, it surprises us. Similarly with COVID as well, our understanding of it is evolving. So the advice and guidance will slightly change as well. But I agree, you know, miscommunication has been rife throughout the pandemic. I think what's really tricky around social media as well, how amazing it is that it provides us with so much knowledge. It also provides us with a lot of misinformation. So there are people like Katie Hopkins. Do you know her? Yes. Her whole account is basically being cruel about Harry Meg, I can't even say their names, being cruel around Harry and Meghan and then just talking around how we shouldn't stay, how we shouldn't wear masks and we should go outside during the pandemic. I remember watching that and thinking people surely aren't believing this, but there are a lot of people who say I'm never getting the vaccine. I don't care about wearing a mask. This is all a scam and they just want our money. And what's hilarious is no one had to pay for a vaccine. Yeah, no, it's, you know, free. No one in the UK had to pay for a vaccine. The thing is, right, um, there are all these proponents of misinformation. So the, the one of the, the legends of misinformation is uh, Andrew Wakefield. Mm-hmm. This guy was a doctor and he was involved in publishing this huge paper on a link between autism and MMR vaccine. Right. And it was published in The Lancet, which is a huge, high-impact, top paper, even now. And there was this ridiculous link between getting the MMR vaccine and autism, which is ridiculous. And obviously, that paper was retracted once, you know, that was completely debunked. Mm -hmm. And this guy obviously lost his medical license. But he still promotes anti-vaccine ideologies and he is a verified celebrity in the anti-vax circles in America. He's moved to America and he still, you know, gives talks in these anti-vax conferences and stuff. And he's a huge player over there. And a lot of people, even though they don't believe in this anti-vax ideologies, Mm -hmm. they see it as a way that they can grow on social media and grow their presence by jumping on that bandwagon, get some virality and traction because they know it will be misinformation is sexy. Having these really polarized views is sexy. You know, Mm. talking normally, saying that, hey, there's some nuance or giving you the real science is not sexy. But being leaning one way or the other grabs attention. How um, interesting. See, I would always feel fearful of that. Sometimes when I think I'm too on one side, I'm always like, oh God, are people going to think I'm too, yeah. too on one side? But you're right. I think 
a lot of people are just promoting things, sharing things because they want to get clickbait, right? Yeah, 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 that's it. And one of the things that I've really found powerful you speaking about is, you know, we are all obsessed as women. And look, I'm definitely a victim of this with having flat abs. Okay, if you've asked me when I was younger, the one thing I wanted in life was to feel confident yeah. when I in a bikini on the beach and to have a picture when my stomach was flat. Now talk to me about women having six packs because this is another thing that has been glamorized in the last few years and this kind of like strength is sexy, you know, now we're kind of moving back into this heroin chic is sexy, which oh, is God, ridiculous. Yeah. But all these headlines are kind of circling back to like the 2000s where mm. women who are really, really skinny look amazing. But still we are seeing this obsession with women's stomachs, women's abs. Is it actually healthy for a woman to have abs? Well, I think the misconception comes with the lack of understanding about physiology and, you know, general biology, really. You know, mm -hmm. first of all, fat isn't always a bad thing. There are actually two types of fat. There's subcutaneous fat, which you can kind of, you know, pinch on your skin. That's kind of subcutaneous fat. And then there's a the visceral fat, which is the deeper fat. And that's this is generally thought to be the unhealthy fat. It wraps around organs. You know, I see it when I'm operating on people. It's wrapped around people's colons, mm -hmm. liver. Uh, pancreas, etc., and this can contribute to metabolic disease, poor cardiovascular health, etc., mm -hmm. increase the risk of cancer, and all these sort of things. So you can be skinny and have high amounts of visceral fat, and you can be, you know, on the surface, you know, curvy, mm. but have low amounts of visceral fat. And I right. see this when I'm operating on people, and you know, I have the chance to look inside people. Someone can be skinny fat and unhealthy. So they have the fat inside or around their organs and you can be kind of a healthy fat and they don't have a lot of uh, visceral fat and you just got a lot of subcutaneous fat. An example of that is be a sumo wrestler. They did a study where they compared sumo wrestlers to um, other adult males of the same uh, weight and size. Mm -hmm. And they did uh, CT scans of these people and they found that the sumo wrestlers had lower amounts of visceral fat than their counterparts who were not sumo wrestlers. Wow. And they were healthier because they are elite athletes in their own right. They do hours and hours of training a day and exercise stimulates um, adiponectin, which is a hormone which can reduce the amount of visceral fat. And, you know, there's all sorts of things we can get into about that. But without being too geeky, onto the topic of six packs. So women on average carry a higher body fat percentage than men. They mm -hmm. have around, you know, 12-ish percent of essential body fat. Mm -hmm. Men have around 3% of essential body fat. Essential body fat is different from total body fat. This essential body fat is what we need for vital functions, for insulating us, providing us with warmth, protecting and padding the organs, uh, producing various hormones. For example, mm -hmm. that essential body fat uh, fat is an endocrine organ in its own right. It produces hormones like estrogen. So in women, estrogen is important not only yeah. to maintain reproductive health, mm -hmm. but also for psychological health, for maintaining bone density. So for a woman to, if they're getting abs, this is a, on average, not for everyone. Yeah. Dropping down to a body fat percentage that would be low enough, it would almost be creeping towards that essential body fat percentage 13 percent. yeah then you're compromising on those essential functions you might get hypothalamic amenorrhea where you get a transient cessation of your periods you might get psychological issues low bone density which increases your risk of bone fractures and the thing is estrogen low fat or very low fat means very low estrogen which has significant physiological and psychological impacts on health and especially in postmenopausal women who naturally experience a drop off in estrogen Having six-pack wow. abs, again, would increase the risk of those things. Now, the caveat to that is that we all carry body fat, uh, you know, in different areas. Correct. And it's in different ways. So someone can have a higher than expected body fat percentage and still have visible abs mm. because they have a leaner torso, etc. So it's all very variable. But for the average person, for the average woman, having a six-pack isn't necessarily healthy. And as a general rule... You know, six pack doesn't equal healthy. You know, there's health promoting behaviors which are far more important. Making sure your bowel habits good, making sure your sleep is good, regulating your stress. And even for men as well, trying to have a six pack for the same reasons can completely, you know, cause your testosterone to plummet. Wow. And you'll see these bodybuilders who have, you know, body fat percentages so low, you can see their pancreas secreting insulin. That's how low it is. 
they have very low libido, very uh-huh. low testosterone. Their testicles are shrunk because of the low testosterone. And yeah, fat is good in many ways. You talk about sleep there, and that's something I definitely struggle with. And I'm kind of the person who will just drink like five coffees a day and just kind of power through if I need to. You know, on average, I would say I've I've never been someone who slept a lot. And this is what I mean. Some people need to sleep like seven, eight hours every day and some people don't. Is that true? So the seven, eight hour thing is a myth. You don't have to sleep eight hours a day. There's a certain, so quality and quantity is important. There is a certain number of hours you need to sleep and it's more dictated by how fresh you feel when you wake up. If you've slept six hours and you feel fresh when you wake up, that's probably fine for you. If you sleep nine hours and you feel fresh, great. If you sleep seven and you're not fresh, maybe you need an extra hour or change your uh, bed patterns because we all have our own biological clock, which dictates on a biological level how much sleep you need to feel Mm. fresh. In every cell in our body, we've got little clocks, clock proteins, which determine our circadian rhythm. That sort of internal, you know, metronome, which dictates how much sleep we need, at what time certain hormones are released, and it varies individual to individual, which is why we have these chronotypes or these sleep differences. Mm. Someone's a, you know, night owl or a morning lark or whatever. We have slight differences which lead us to sleep at different times, wake up at different times, require different hours. And it's also the depth of sleep. You need to have not only a certain number of hours, but also a certain number of hours of uninterrupted sleep. So you can get into those deeper REM sleep stages, yeah. have the slow wave sleep, there's kind of deeper non-REM stages. That's essential for release of growth hormone. You need to get into those deeper REM stages uh, where you can have the release of testosterone and general body restoration and repair. As a doctor, you're telling me all of these things, but I, I bet most of the doctors don't get that. Yeah, a lot of doctors don't. They smoke, they drink loads of alcohol. I know many doctors who abuse all sorts of drugs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Why? Stresses of the job. You know, I've known some doctors who have been struck off because they've uh, abused some anesthetic agents from the anesthetic cupboard that you give patients uh, because it's easy access. You think you can access it and you're struggling to sleep, you're struggling at home, you're struggling financially the stresses of the job, all sorts of things. And, Mm. you know, a quick fix, sometimes a crutch, is to abuse uh, various vices, whether it's smoking, drinking, hardcore drugs. Happens. I think in the society kind of like we've grown up in, we've grown up with instant gratification a lot. Mm. And I speak about that a lot on this podcast, is everything seems so easy if you can just fix it with one quick pill, right? You know, you can't fix anything with one quick thing. It's all around small habits, small changes and progress. But as a doctor and as a surgeon, you probably find it, you probably advise people a lot on on these kind of small steps. So what would be your biggest advice for people listening to this podcast who are struggling at the moment with their health, with their sleep, with their overall kind of body? Yeah, like you said, nothing is a quick fix. Mm-hmm. And even if you want to fix your sleep, your bowel routine, your general health, you need to give yourself a several month plan. Wow. You know, just say that, you know, I'm going to have shitty sleep for several days, several weeks, but it's seeing those gradual improvements every time. So I'm going to not drink coffee, you know, after 2 p.m. Mm. or I'm going to not watch Netflix in bed. Just making tiny yeah. little changes and eventually adding in those changes, they culminate into big changes over time. And that's what I do in surgery. I don't say to myself, I'm going to learn how to do that surgery by next week. Mm-hmm. When you're a surgeon, when you're a surgical trainee, you're taught to break the procedure down into small bits. So for example, when I was first learning how to do an appendix, I didn't learn how to do an appendix. I learned how to make the cuts. I learned the anatomy. I learned how to dissect the appendix off the colon. I learned to... Uh, tie the blood supply off the appendix. I learned to cut it. Mm. So, and then I add all those steps. I'm taught individual things each time. So it's only after doing my 12th or 13th appendix, the next one, I did all those steps on my own. Wow. And then it was after, you know, doing a dozen or seeing a dozen appendixes, I was able to do the appendix. So mm. make those small changes and it adds up into a big change. So don't give yourself a unenviable task of climbing this insurmountable thing that you know because then you're just gonna procrastinate 100 percent, and that was one of the reasons i created the performance panel right as you saw you know you have a big picture goal the most important thing is to break it down because when you're in a dark room you can see the step in front of you Mm. you may not be able to see the door but you can see the step in front 
And it's so important to just focus on that one step. And it's for important when you've got this big task or this big goal, focus on one thing at a time. And that's why I always tell everyone, write down your idea and then write down everything you need to do to, to achieve that. And then block off time, time block. Yeah. When are you gonna achieve those things? And slowly, 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 you'll see that progress. If you kind of just jump in, and a lot of people message me on here saying, I wanna start a podcast. And I'm like, okay, so have you thought of a name? Have you thought about your posting schedule? Have you thought about where you want to do it? They're like, no, I just want to start a podcast. And I'm like, okay, the podcast is the goal. The first thing you need to do is think about what you want to talk about. What's your name going to be? Where are you going to release it? And it's these small things. Once you get that, then you're closer to starting a podcast. Yeah. But it's all about breaking things down. And I really believe in the power and of it, that too. It gives you momentum as well. 100%. A small task, like whether it's 100%. washing the dishes or you're going to the gym, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to think about going to the gym. You just put your gym clothes out. Exactly. And that just encourages you a bit more to, okay, yeah, it's easy. I'll just go to the gym. Exactly. Make it easier to then do the next thing. 100%. That cue, craving and reward is really, yeah. really important. But Karen, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really insightful. I feel like I've got a million questions to ask you mm -hmm. off camera now. So one of, the, one of the biggest misconceptions is that periods are meant to be very painful. Because a lot of women have very painful periods. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the physiology of having a menstrual cycle, mm -hmm. um, you get a release of chemicals called prostaglandins, which cause the contraction of the muscle layer of the uterus to contract. Okay. And it causes something called transient hypoxia, where there's lack of oxygen going to the cells in the uterus. And that is very painful. But excessive pain that's debilitating that's causing you not to function properly and not allowing you to do your normal activities that is not normal yeah i don't have that but a lot of but in society that's become normalized it has to have very painful periods that you can't go into work you can't go outside and that is not normal because there are mm. so many conditions which are underdiagnosed pcos endometriosis adenomyosis fibroids so which cause menorrhagia you know, very heavy periods and very heavy bleeding. And all of these things are not normal, but we've normalized it some way. Mm. And I think that is, again, part of that gender gap when it comes to healthcare as well. I see a lot of the times where um, I'll see a young woman with abdominal pain and another doctor has written in the notes, uh, you know, you know, diagnosis, query, you know, period pain. I mean, like, mate, it's not period pain. This woman has fucking appendicitis. <gasps> and it's because sometimes doctors can attribute pain. It's so easy to, oh, you've got abdominal pain? It's probably a period, isn't it? It's so easy to reach for that, you know, that straw. It's not. We need to think outside the box because you've got so many organs. It can be other things. Yes, periods can be a thing, but it mm. can be other things. And also endometriosis. Yeah. I'm not a gynecologist, but I deal with lots of young women who come in with abdominal pain, recurrent abdominal pain. After I've excluded other things, it's not their colon, it's not their appendix. Could it be endometriosis? They've had three admissions to hospital My in the last two months God. with this pain. And endometriosis, it's so underdiagnosed and about 10% of people have it. And in the UK, and I think probably worldwide as well, to get a diagnosis of endometriosis, it's an average of seven to eight years to get a diagnosis of it. <gasps> So why is that happening is because we're probably not, you know, taking into account that it could be these things. We're mm. just brushing off, oh, it could be period pain, it could be this. But that's probably because there's not enough time for people to see. It's There's not enough time, uh, there's not enough tests being done, and unfortunately doctors, uh, and I will hold up my hands, I've made mistakes in the past, don't know enough about women's health. It's probably mm. not taught enough in medical school. And also the gold standard for a lot of diagnosis for these um, you know, gynecological conditions require sometimes an operation. You need a diagnostic laparoscopy, a camera test, to diagnose endometriosis. That's the gold standard. Because wow. you can have a completely normal MRI or ultrasound scan and you can still have endometriosis. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. And you can get endometriosis. And because the constellation of symptoms are so vague, you can get nausea, back yeah. pain, heavy periods, just, uh, you know, uh, weight gain, all these weird symptoms, which don't quite pin you to any one direction. It's so vague. It could be anything. There's another reason why it's hard to diagnose. And also there's a million supplements that will now help you with endometriosis. Yeah, exactly. Probiotics. <laughs> PCOS. You know, all these sort of things. And, and to be honest, Endometriosis can be in so many different places in the body. Wow. Uh, you know, I've read case reports of people having endometriosis in the lung, which is crazy. It's crazy. Something that's similar to the lining of the uterus ends up in the lung, you know, or on the colon. 
And I've dealt with cases in surgery where we've had to scrape endometriosis off someone's rectum. You know, and why have they had this abdominal pain and rectal bleeding for months? Because they've had endometriosis. My God. Yeah. So that's just a little mini rant about how we've (laughs) sometimes failed to appreciate the full impact and burden of women's... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, gynecological conditions and women's health. That's part of the gap that we see between, um, you know, men's health and women's health. It's taken sometimes less seriously because, and this is not just a current thing. That's mm-hmm. going back years. I yes. Mean, this know, is not just with health. This is with, with everything. Even the word hysteria has misogynistic tones. You know, it's from the Latin, from the womb. It means like, you know, hystericus of the womb. Mm-hmm. And then it got almost mutated into this word of hysterical and crazy because the womb wanders. You know, people used to think that the womb could wander around the body. So, you know, based on that, you know, lots of mental health conditions in those asylums back in those days, those asylums where all sorts of crazy things happened, you know, women who had mental health conditions were subject to all sorts of torturous things because of lack of understanding of women's health issues. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and it's still continued now, but it's more of like a polished approach. Like, mm-hmm. oh, she's got abdominal pain. It's probably periods or because... She's just exaggerating. You know, yeah, probably yeah. pain from the coil or from uh, contraception she's on or, mm-hmm. you know... Middle schmerz in the middle of the period pain, and mm-hmm. it's easy to overdiagnose someone with that because you don't have to think beyond. Oh, maybe maybe she needs some more tests, and mm. I don't know. Maybe we need to give her a bit more attention. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Shivani. Everyone, and thank you so much for listening and watching this podcast. Wherever you're listening or watching, if you could please press the follow, like, and subscribe button, it would really mean the world to me.